coming, and we're looking forward to what you have to say. I think, uh, yeah, you got the recorder yes. going great. So, uh, welcome, Andrew Sandler. Been at uh, CPAC, so um, Oak. Did I say CPAC? Oak. Oak. Yes. Uh, good. I'm glad it was down here. Uh, OPAC. So much now that I travel around the country, I tell people about you. So um, before long, maybe you'll be famous, uh, or at least, uh, or at least infamous. Infamous is a better better term. Uh, very grateful for um, my dear friend Bob Lynn and for. Uh, Lowell and for Mike and uh, Charlie, of course, and a number of you that I've uh, grown to know. Um, I was really happy to spend a little time with uh, two very gifted uh, young people this morning, young adults, uh, Ben and Kayla. And uh, raise your hands so everybody, you probably know them, they've spoken here before. They could probably get up here and speak better than I could. But uh, they're um, planning to come out to our uh, symposium in San Francisco. Trust me, there are a few Christian conservatives there in San Francisco. <laughs> and um, we'll be meeting there early in December and to have a pretty high-level uh, discussion among a number of Christians and uh, conservatives on influence in the culture. We're inviting a lot of young people out this year, young, uh, budding Christian and conservative leaders. There are two of them. We're providing, our think tank's providing uh, the conference expenses and the hotel room. They are working on raising money for travel expenses to get out there. So, in addition to the fine senator and giving him money, I wish he were running in our state. Um, the Republicans in our state wouldn't let him in the party, sadly. Uh, but in addition to that, I hope that you can uh, maybe make out a check to the Center for Cultural Leadership. You can give cash, but help these two get out there, because I hope that one day they'll be the ones leading organizations like this, uh, perhaps here or somewhere else in the country. Um, so, uh, also a good, I think I saw uh, my dear friend, uh, Judge Graves, oh, there he is, he, he took my seat. <laughs> when a district judge takes your seat, you let him take your seat, so, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Bill met him at one of these similar events. CCL actually is publishing um, uh, his writings. Next year should be released, his law review writings, and uh, also his shorter writings. And I uh, hope that we'll be able to make them available here. And uh, perhaps he can come and even speak that day. And if you'll buy one of the books, uh, sign it for you, you probably know that he is one of the great conservative heroes Amen. in Oklahoma. Amen. And uh, I would also say, because of in Oklahoma, uh, the United States. So, um, I, uh, in addition to being uh, president and leader of a, a Christian think tank, I'm also an ordained minister. So, I thought today, in uh, the brief time available, I would preach a short sermon, a short sermon, but one I believe that's uh, very relevant uh, to all of you here. Um, in the uh, <clears throat> summer of 2011, a superb uh, Christian college ministry that actually Bob and one of the other gentlemen here uh, worked for called Campus Crusade for Christ made a decision to change their name. Some of you know about this. 
and they decided to change the name to the shortened word crew, C-R-U. The staff members had used that expression. And so when the time came to change the name, they thought, well, that would be a good name change. But that wasn't the reason they changed the name. The reason they changed the name is that one word in their original name had become so offensive to uh, the modern culture, uh, and particularly Muslims they were trying to evangelize. They said, we really need to get that word out of our name. Now, far be it for me to criticize Campus Crusade, wonderful group, far be it for me to criticize them, but I simply wanted to make a point. Oh, by the way, did I mention, what's the word that they found to be offensive that had to be changed? What was the word? Actually, no, not the word Christ, the word crusade. The word crusade. And of course, with reference to the medieval Christian crusades, and to be honest, there were a lot of things that happened then that should not have happened. Christians, professed Christians, acted in ways they should not have. But in general, it was the idea of Christians banding together in the Western church to wage crusades to bring back Christian territory that had been expropriated by Muslims. Now, my main point is this. Whatever you or I may think about that, I want to essentially make one point today and perhaps make it in four or five different ways. And it's this. Christianity is all about a crusade. And if you don't believe in crusading, you can't be a Christian or you can't be a good Christian. I want to make several points about that. First, quoting from 2 Timothy chapter 4. You may, if you're a Christian here, and I hope that most or all of you are, Paul is writing toward the end of his life. And you remember what he wrote his son, Timothy. He says, son in the faith, Timothy. He said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And notice that first clause. I have fought a good fight. Paul was a fighter. And we need to be fighters. And I want to assert today that fighting is not optional. In an evil world, fighting and crusading is not optional. It's what we're called to do. Lovingly, yes. Graciously, yes. But nonetheless, we must fight. So I just want to make a couple of points about that, and I really do want to save time for, for questions and comments. The first thing I want us to understand is that, oh, and I want to say this parenthetically, I have spoken from many different podiums in the U.S. and other places in the world I think this is the first time I've ever spoken from a decorative barrel as a podium. This is really impressive. And that really fits in with the motif of uh, Charlie's overalls. I mean, it all just fits beautifully together. So I want to make several points today. First, the Christian faith, our faith, is built on a crusade. It's built on a crusade. The very first time that Jesus Christ is implicitly mentioned, hinted at in the Bible, some of you know, is in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. After the fall, remember God comes to Adam and Eve and he makes a glorious promise. He says the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. How many of you, you've read your Bible, you know this, you know what I'm talking about? Now, if you read the New Testament, we know who the seed of the woman is. Who is the seed of the woman? Jesus Christ. 
Then he talks about the seed of the serpent. No doubt that's uh, Satan, or at least his followers, his minions, angels and demons. The word there sometimes is like bruise or harm or something like that. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's pretty strong. It is crush. The, the metaphor here is that Jesus Christ is going to take his heel and crush Satan's head. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds sort of like a crusade to me. That's pretty serious. Now, do you understand the point that he's making there implicitly? Is Jesus, God cannot save us apart from Jesus Christ destroying the work of the devil. It has to be destroyed. Then we, of course, think about Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew, particularly Matthew chapter 18. And the promises to the church of Jesus Christ. You remember the glorious promises? A lot of preachers preach on it. The gates of hell will not... Can anybody finish it? Prevail against the church, right? And sometimes people interpret the metaphor this way. Well, the church and all of its members have gotten inside, as it were, the four walls of the sanctuary. And the world is terribly evil. And Satan is taking over everything. But when he comes to the walls of the church, We will be able to withstand him and he won't be able to get in. And then he'll go away after getting weary and we can heave a huge sigh of relief. The church has been saved. But if you think about the metaphor, that's not what the metaphor is saying. The gates of hell won't prevail against the church. The fact is gates don't move. Gates don't attack. The metaphor is actually very potent. It means when we as the saints storm the gates of hell, the gates of Sheol, the gates of the dead, Satan's gates. When we storm his gates, they won't resist what we are doing. Ah, isn't that interesting? That is a picture of ecclesial or churchly victory, no matter what a lot of ministers say today, tragically. So we have these Satan-crushing promises to the church. And then there's the Great Commission given in Matthew 28 and elsewhere. Go and make disciples of all nations. That's essentially what it says, literally. Go and disciple all nations. Now, it says ethnos there. It doesn't mean just get individuals saved. That certainly is implied, and that's vitally important. It means we're called to disciple the nations, to bring them under the authority of Jesus Christ. Did you ever think about that, that particularly those of us in the United States are called to disciple this nation for the glory of Jesus Christ? You say, well, Andrew, you mean by that that we hold a revival meeting and get a number of people converted and then teach them a little in the faith and they don't smoke and drink and chew and then they can go to heaven when they die. No, that's not what Matthew chapter 28 is teaching, actually. It's teaching that in every area of, the li- of life, the church is to influence, through the power of the gospel, is to influence everything, and as much as possible, not through political coercion, we're not big state people, not through pol- political coercion, but on a local level, on a churchly level, a familial level, levels like this, what's going on here at Oak Pack, influence people through the gospel, the fullness of the gospel, to live godly lives, and thus influence all of culture. That's how this crushing goes on. Now, this is a key, and I guess maybe you won't understand this unless you grasp this point. 
How many of you have heard of uh, confessions of faith or creeds? Some of you, the Apostles' Creed, do you say the Apostles' Creed in your church? Or maybe every Sunday, some of you don't, but you know what I'm talking about. Well, actually, the earliest creed of the Christian church is in the Bible. The earliest creed in English translates to three words, and it is this. Tell me what it is. Jesus is Lord. Amen. That's the early, earliest creed. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Master, it means. Now, I'd like to pose a question. Do all of you here believe that Jesus is Lord? If you're a Christian, the correct answer to that is yes. By the way, even if you're a non-Christian, the answer to that is still yes. Well, then let's explore it a little more deeply. Is there a particular area of life over which Jesus Christ is not Lord? Can you think of one? Maybe technology? Well, no. Uh, Politics? No. Uh, The family? No. Art? Architecture? Somebody says, Andrew, come to think about it, I can't think of one area of life over which Jesus isn't Lord. If that is the case, my friends, then the message of the gospel is much bigger than people suggest. It's much bigger than most Christians understand. And that leads me to a second thing I want to say, and that is, and this is somewhat ominous, I hope you'll think about it, Avoiding crusades invites the triumph of evil. Avoiding crusades invites the triumph of evil. It's amazing how many Christians I encounter who either say or imply something like this. Well, yeah, I know about you know, aggressive people like you guys at CCL and say here in Oklahoma, Oak Pack, and kind of aggressive, but I'm not really a fighter. I just want to live a quiet and peaceful life. I don't want to really offend anybody. I just want to kind of move under Satan's radar. And he won't see me and I won't disturb him. And maybe he won't disturb me. Well, as somebody said, to paraphrase the Marxist Trotsky, you might not not, um, want the culture war, but the culture war wants you. So understand this, that Satan is fully committed, whether you fight him or not, to undermining you and your precious family and seducing your children and grandchildren to harming this organization, to harming your church, destroying your church, to undermining and destroying your state and destroying our nation. He's very aggressively committed to that. And if your attitude and mine is, well, I think if we sit back and we don't do anything, everything will be just fine, we are sadly deluded. In other words, we don't have an option to sit out the battle. Which is to say there's no such thing as a mild, peaceful, a mild, peaceful Christian life. Everybody says, I don't have any problems at all. I seem never to have any problems. Well, they're either liars or they're insane. (laughs) Understand, please, that we cannot be at peace with a sinful world. We're called to oppose evil. I'll give you a couple of concrete examples. It's just harrowing to me. I know of a number of, of Christian wives whose husbands are serial 
unrepentant adulterers who never say anything, who never do anything and say, well, I don't want to rock the boat because I need the family to go on and for the sake of the children. No, for the sake of the children, this wife needs to stand up and say, change or get out. We need to confront evil. Evil should be confronted. Paul says, don't have any fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Paul the Apostle writes in Ephesians. But rather expose them. It's not enough to separate from evil, Paul is saying. He makes that very clear. It's not enough to say, we won't partake of abortion and pornography and homosexual marriage. We never would. But if somebody else wants to, that's okay. That really is a non-Christian attitude. If somebody else wants to do it, that's okay. No, my friends, actually, in an evil world, we're called to rock the boat. That's what we're called to do. Now, I don't believe this is true of any pastors that might be here, but I want to say something. Our pastors, I'm not even talking about our liberal pastors. I'm talking about our conservative pastors have on the whole, have on the whole, failed spectacularly on this point. Now, they're very interested in the growth of their Awana programs, which is fine. Growth of Sunday school, wrecking the new uh, sanctuary, the new Sunday school annex, and all of these programs. That's a wonderful thing. But part of the responsibility of pastors and preachers is to declare in the language of Paul the whole or entire counsel of God. Now somebody says, well, I don't, just don't like this business of preachers preaching politics. Well, actually what you're really saying is that you don't want them preaching the Bible. Because the Bible does address a lot of political issues. It's true the Bible's not Democrat or Republican. But it addresses issues that today are considered political issues. Now, some people say, well, I just want to preach Jesus. But Jesus addressed political issues all the time. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Paul addressed political issues. Moses did, and Jeremiah. You can't be faithful to the Word of God as a minister of the Gospel if you don't address these issues. Unfortunately, the Gospel that is preached is a very narrow, unbiblical Gospel of Jesus Christ, sadly. People say, oh, the church is involved in politics. We need to, I've had them tell me this, we need to get back just to preaching the gospel. And you know what I often say? Amen. That's exactly what we need to do. Get back to preaching the gospel. And the gospel involves Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, who rose again victoriously the third day, who ascended to the heavens where he's ruling and reigning, shed his spirit on the earth, who gave us his inspired word that we're supposed to obey in every area of life and influence everything for the lordship of Jesus Christ. See, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Every area presently under the dominion of sin, every area of life presently under the dominion of sin is designed incrementally, incrementally to be reversed. Sin began in Eden. We all agree that. We're Christians, right? You believe the Bible? Sin began in Eden. All of that evil began in the Garden of Eden. Everything that began there must be reversed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the church of Jesus Christ, and particularly ministers, are called to preach a gospel that will influence evil and turn back evil wherever it is. Unfortunately, churches have failed to do that. And if you want to know one of the principal reasons that we have... Roe v. Wade and Obergefell and pervasive pornography and Obamacare and uh, all sorts of 
leftist socialism. If you want to know one reason, one of the main reasons, not the only reason, but one of the main reasons, it's because the Church of Jesus Christ and its ministers have not been faithful in declaring the full gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I must tell you, it's easy to blame the politicians, not the present, not the one here, thank God, but it's easy to blame politicians, and they do bear a lot of the blame. But I must say, what's happened very often is the churches step back and said, well, we don't want to address these issues. And so we want politicians addressing particular issues that the church itself should be addressing more fully. My friends, the church of Jesus Christ has got to start standing for the truth. And I would now urge all of you here, and I presume most of you are not ministers, to pray for your minister and to urge your minister and perhaps write a letter. When a dear friend of mine is here, Bill Graves showed me a wonderful letter he wrote to his good pastor this past week about honoring the Reformation. We need more people who are willing to do that. To urge their pastors to stand for the faith. And then, I, so much more I'd like to say, but I'll move on. <clears throat> Third and finally, crusaders can expect opposition. Crusaders can expect opposition. Now, if your attitude and mine is that we're going to sit down and do very little, then we'll get some opposition, but not a great deal. But I assure you that if you intentionally go over to the beehive, the satanic, sinister beehive from which all sorts of evil is buzzing, and you stick a a sharp stick into the beehive, the bees are going to come after you. And everybody here that stands for the truth knows exactly what I'm talking about. But that's part of what being a Christian is. Part of what being a Christian is, is you can expect that you will get opposition from people who hate the truth. If, for example, you stand for the authority of the moral law of God, I'm going to say this parenthetically, the law of God cannot save us. We are saved entirely by the atoning work of Jesus Christ and his glorious resurrection and by faith we cast ourselves on Jesus Christ and that is how we are saved, by faith alone. However, the faith alone that saves is never alone but is accompanied by good works and they're manifested in the law of God. It's remarkable how anti-law, how anti-nomian our culture is. Oh, the 19th century, late 18th, early 19th century romanticism is everywhere. It's essentially the idea that, well, we don't like rules. Rules are bad. Have you ever noticed how many of these commercials, car commercials, we're breaking all the rules, they say. Clothing commercials, we've broken all the rules. Nobody's going to hem us in. Well, that's just the general attitude of the time. And the notion is that internally, sort of, we can invent our lives. We have sort of an an inside-out philosophy of life. That we are the beautiful artists of our own life. We paint the beautiful panoply and the beautiful uh, painting of our own life. We decide, and how dare anyone impose on us. But my friends, the law of God revealed in the Word of God is true, and it's not true just for Christians. The moral law of God is designed to shape every area of society, including but not limited to politics. By the way, our founders understood this fact, and even more so, behind them, the Puritans understood this fact. Those who came to these shores understood the fact that civil law 
should be in harmony with the moral law of God, revealed in the Word of God and secondarily uh, in creation. So to press people back to the moral law of God is not wrong, it is right. Say, well, heaven forbid we can ever like bring up the moral law of God, somebody might be offended. What, do you think that's a new thing? Do you think 2,000 years ago when people brought up the moral law of God in the ancient Roman Empire, people weren't offended? The ancient pagans were offended too. Now know this too, particularly in this climate, I want to say this as a warning to all of us. You know, Christians who stand for the truth occasionally have been known actually to suffer for Jesus Christ. I know it's going to come as a big surprise to many of us. But you know, that has actually happened. Did you know that the founder of our faith actually suffered capital punishment? Wrongly, but suffered capital punishment? Did you know that he died? Did you hear that? Did you know that a number of his followers, historically for standing up for the truth, have suffered for the faith? So if above everything else we want a quiet, comfortable life, I want to assert to you, you can't be a good Christian. You can't be a good Christian if more than anything else you want a quiet, comfortable life. Now God does give us great blessings. Aren't we having great food, great drink? All that's fine, but understand, fundamentally, we're called to Jesus Christ and obeying Him. What a glorious truth it is. Oh, today's targets, the family with divorce and abortion and egg harvesting and same-sex marriage. Whenever you say that, always put it in quotation marks. Same-sex marriage. It's not really marriage. If you read, as I have to sometimes, and I hope you don't, what some of these secularists say about marriage, understand this, the goal of most of the intellectual proponents of same-sex marriage is not same-sex marriage. It's to destroy the family. That's what they're really after. It's not just, oh, we just want the freedom to marry like everybody else does. That's not the objective of those leading the agenda, the secularist agenda. It is to destroy the institution of the family. They've been at it and they've been very successful thus far. And then attacking the church, immoral leaders falling into sin, and more than anything, this sort of quiescent church that doesn't stand up for the truth. Bob and I were talking this morning. I've met Dan Fisher, appreciate him, a godly man, hope he can win. I think Bob was giving me the statistic. I mean, he's run all the numbers and everything. If even 10% of the, 10% of the conservative churches in Oklahoma, 10%, 10% of the population of the conservative churches in Oklahoma, 10% would vote for him, he'd win in a landslide. Too much to ask? Too much to ask? 10%? Not 40%, just 10%. That shows the failure of our churches. And not specifically about him, I mean him and other good people and other issues if the church would awaken. And false teaching and the online competence of the state. Oh, mark this down and I'll stop here in a minute, but mark this down quickly. There will either be a sovereign God who will speak through his sovereign word and if we give up the sovereignty of God, the state will rush in to be sovereign. It will either be the sovereignty of God or the sovereignty of the state. Understand that behind a big statism and all this, there is a deep religious impulse. It's not a secular impulse. It's a deeply apostate religious impulse. That the state will start doing for you what you actually, under God, you and your family and church, should be doing for yourself. You say, Andrew, I guess the next step would... What you're really kind of saying is that statism, the idea of the big state is a form of idolatry. You got it. 
You got it. And sadly, even a lot of Christians worship at the altar of the big state and the big national government. It's an idol. It's an idol. And it's wrong. Uh, much more to say, but I'll stop there. You'll have to invite me back to get the rest of it. So, here's the key. Listen very carefully. You cannot preserve a position without crusading for it. The Christianity of our children and grandchildren, it will not survive. It will not survive unless we're willing to fight for it. We can't just sit back and say everything's going to be okay. It won't be okay. We must fight. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity. Bless the time of questions now. Thank you for this group and Charlie and John as he's away. Fill them with your spirit. May they stand for the truth in the political realm, smaller government, and all of these great moral and political issues of the time. We pray it, Father, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Okay, Robert, we have another... Uh...